Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast on Trobe Asia, where we examine the news, events and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia, and joining me today to discuss the state of the North Korean economy is Dr. Ben Habib from La Trobe University. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks for having me. So when people think about North Korea, particularly people who don't watch it closely, there's a sort of association with really two things. One is nuclear weapons and a, let's say, fairly enigmatic approach to the rest of the world, and dire poverty, particularly famines, the sort of stories of children eating grass, all of the kind of horror stories of of a famine you can't see, but everyone seems to think about. Yet the North Korean economy itself is something of a story and one which is becoming a key part of um, North Korea's sort of long-term proposition. We're going from a situation where people thought the country was going to collapse in a heap to where it seems to be an ongoing proposition. So perhaps to start the discussion, if you might just sketch out a bit of a background about the North Korean economy, what it looks like, generally speaking, external observers don't tend to know a lot about it, but what has it got, how big is it, and how do we know about it? That's a good question. I agree. When we think of North Korea, the nuclear angle and the, the poverty and the prison camps, etc., they get all the headlines. But uh, the North Korean economy, I think, is the most dynamic space uh, at the moment when we're thinking of what's going on in North Korea. There's a lot of change happening, both from the grassroots and also uh, from above as the government tries to adjust uh, to some of the social forces that are beginning to shape the society and the, the economy itself. Uh, in terms of how we know about the North Korean economy, well, they they don't trade much with the West because of the international sanctions regime, uh, but they do trade a lot with China and with other countries uh, who sort of fall outside of the Western orbit. As a visitor into North Korea, when you go to marketplaces or generally where you buy anything, you see a lot of Chinese-labelled goods, and that's a, a good indicator of the, the level of trade. What North Korea does have going for it Uh, in terms of being able to export, is a lot of good natural resources. So they've got a lot of coal and other uh, minerals uh, that get exported to China and elsewhere. And particularly since about 2009, this has uh, really raised the foreign currency revenue that the government's been able to extract. And you can see evidence of this in the, the level of building evidence of material prosperity among the people, particularly in Pyongyang and some of the other larger cities. Although that prosperity has not filtered out into the countryside. It's interesting you say that you've got both a top-down story where government reform, and we'll come to that in a moment, but also a bottom-up story where I guess you'd call it spontaneous markets, black market goods, people growing their own food and vegetables and the like. It is a command economy, at least in theory, and yet there seems to be this place for a private sector. How important has that become in recent years? Well, the command economy is only a narrow slice of the bigger economic picture in the DPRK now. And this really was a result of the famine period and the economic collapse that occurred in the mid-1990s. So that fragmented the command economy into what you might call a series of parallel economies. And sort of the grassroots entrepreneurialism that sprung up at this time really was people's coping mechanism about how are they going to access food, how are they going to access other important consumables, uh, at a time when the state had withdrawn from providing those things through the, the official ration or through other distribution mechanisms that essentially fell apart because the government didn't have the resources to fulfil those commitments. Of course, it is still a command economy and the top-down stuff matters. 
for a whole bunch of reasons, whether it's predatory or whether it's just providing the framework for economic interaction. So Kim Jong-un's been in power for a few years now. I think something that, again, hasn't gotten a lot of press outside of North Korea or outside of the kind of close Korea-watching community is a suite of economic reforms or an economic reform program. So what's he done? And, you know, to what extent do we see the kind of relative dynamism of the North Korean economy as a result of those reforms? Mm. The first initial step under the Kim Jong-un regime was uh, the June 28th measures in the agricultural sector, which were brought in in 2013. Under this policy, uh, the government experimented with liberalising the amount of produce that uh, selected farms could keep for themselves. So these are the state-owned big collective farms. So the farmers themselves could keep a much larger slice of their production uh, for themselves, which they could either consume or they could sell in market activities and make a profit from that. So the idea was to boost some of the, the material incentives for the farmers to produce more. But the other top-down measure that's been rolling out for a while but has really gathered pace in the last few years is the special economic zone measures. Uh, so special economic zones was a, a strategy uh, very much pioneered by Deng Xiaoping in China in the 1980s. The Chinese government's been encouraging North Korea to go down this road. This is something that's started to gather pace. North Korea established their first SEZ in the, in the early 1990s in Rason, uh, which is a, a joint port facility based around the, the cities of Rajin and Sonbong in the northeast, near, the, near where the Chinese and Russian borders converge. At the time, the North Korean government liked that because it was a long way away from Pyongyang and they felt they could isolate uh, any marketisation and restrict the threat of capitalist contagion uh, to the rest of the country. But it's only in the last few years that Rasan has really started to take off. Now, I've been there relatively recently, and it is, it's a very dynamic place. There's a lot of Chinese and Russian investment activity in there. Uh, Chinese, particularly uh, with joint venture facilities in textiles and other manufacturing, uh, the Russians are uh, more interested in building infrastructure there. So there's a, a new rail connection. There's a new bridge uh, over the Tumen River that's going in there. So this Rasan zone is being incorporated into Russia's uh, Far East development strategy. And it's also helping the Chinese government realise their development goals for Jilin province. Uh, because China doesn't have seaport access to that area. And that's been a restriction on what the Chinese could do in terms of establishing export zones in their territory in the area. So it's, it's an interesting sort of mix of communist reform programs. On the one hand, you've got the agricultural reforms, which is straight out of the Soviet playbook circuit, kind of 1986. And then you've got the special economic zones, which is, again, straight out of the Chinese Communist Party playbook of, you know, not dissimilar time frame, where you had the special economic zone established around Shenzhen near Hong Kong, I think 1984, right? Interestingly, the sort of question of contagion, you know, the sort of capitalist contagion, of course, there's the idea that it's not just the notions of capitalism catching on, but that idea that North Korean people will find out about the rest of the world and find out about what life is like in China or what life is like in South Korea. Is the government now sufficiently relaxed is probably the wrong, wrong word, but less concerned with the kind of communication channels that are going to open up when you have trade with the outside world of the kind that they seem to need or seem to be keen to encourage? Mm. Well, that bird has flown, the information blockade. You know, it's still there, but the average North Korean knows all about prosperity in China and South Korea. 
there's a lot of Chinese who are doing business in the north, particularly in the border cities. So there's plenty of person-to-person -person interaction. Uh, a lot of North Koreans will have watched Korean language soap operas from the south, so they've seen the, the material prosperity of Seoul. The prospect of a contagion effect is not as an important factor now. What was interesting going to Rasan is seeing that it's still very much an extraterritorial enclave within North Korea. It's got its own internal border with heavily policed checkpoints. So you can imagine if there was free movement of people in the DPRK, that would become a mecca for internal migration and that would distort the rest of North Korean economy. So the government's very much interested in keeping Rasan as this enclosed zone for reasons that have less to do with contagion now and more to do with uh, maintaining a social stability around the whole country. And I imagine being a, a North Korean that can access this either as a worker or as a business person would be fairly constrained and probably itself subject to politicking in favours and deal-making and the like. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it would be a privileged place to be because there's money to be made there and standards of living there are a little bit better than elsewhere in the country. So, yeah, it would be very much a reward to be involved in this area. Do you think we're in this situation where we can begin to talk about North Korea having a kind of nascent middle class, that you've got people who've got disposable income that can be invested in businesses or can be spent on consumer goods or to move beyond the kind of subsistence class that most North Koreans have lived in for, for a long period of time? Yeah, absolutely, and we're seeing this right now. <laughs> North Korea's nouveau riche referred to as the Tunju, or money masters, if you convert that to English. And there's a, people like Lim Il-chul and Andre Lankov have done some interesting work in documenting the rise of the Tunju class. They rose from the grassroots entrepreneurial activities that sprung up around the arduous march period in the 90s. You know, started out with people who were just trading sort of consumable goods in private markets, built up enough cash to maybe open a billiard hall or a karaoke room, through that activity, they've been able to amass private capital and perhaps on the side have had access to foreign currency through relatives or through other activities where they could get hold of Chinese yuan, for example, uh, which has helped them build up this reserve. So now the Tunju are at a, a scale and a, a degree of wealth where they can actually invest in production activities within North Korea and there's sort of a de facto alliance between the government and members of the Tunju to be able to finance some of the development activities that the government's interested in. Is this middle class largely a Pyongyang phenomenon? Is it largely in and around Pyongyang and the SEZs? Or are we not sure? Like all things with North Korea, good estimations based on the evidence that's available. And you would expect where there's accumulations of money and wealth, you're likely to find Tunju class. Around the SEZs, I mean, obviously, there's foreign investment there. They have to have joint partnerships. The North Koreans in those places have access to foreign capital through those relationships. Anywhere along the border region where there is interaction, where people do have an opportunity uh, to trade and, and get money from relatives and, or remittances and so forth. And, of course, Pyongyang, because that's the wealthiest place in the country. Turn now to the, the relationship between the government and this nascent middle class. And you said earlier that there's not a complicit relationship, but actually a good relationship in which the two are working well. But they're Marxists, and they should be aware of the fact that you change the economic basis of a society and the political structures are likely to change. Under his father, the North Korean government was very uneasy about 
wealth. And there was that famous revaluation of the currency in 2009, essentially just take wealth away from this entrepreneurial class that had grown up. Are they now more relaxed? Do they see this as their only way out? Or is there some greater reckoning that is going to come as the interests of the middle class ultimately bump up against the interests of, of the ruling elite in the Korean Workers' Party? Yeah, that's a live question, I think. I mean, in the past, every time this nascent middle class has risen to a certain level, the government's interpreted a potential political threat from this group and tried to stomp them down. So the 2009 currency revaluation very much interpreted as an attempt to uh, hollow out or devalue the currency holdings of this group and try and mute their political power. But I think now the Tunju group has reached a size where that's perhaps not possible. And now that there's a, an alignment of interest between the government and this group, uh, I'd be surprised if we saw a, that kind of intervention from the government to try and squash them. You know, we talk about the prospects of regime collapse in North Korea. It's always been the open question. And in the 1990s, that was very much caused by an energy shock. And I don't see that kind of event playing out again. So I don't think collapse is the big issue. The big political change might come from when this middle class reaches a size where if their position becomes threatened by the government or by some other social force, that they might become a revolutionary force that could challenge for power. They've reached a scale where it's not so easy for the government to try and slap them down and that the political impact of their wealth and their number has become quite significant. Any sense of that scale? I mean, you've, you've talked about it being a large group. Any Has anyone made a, a guess as to what is it 5% of the population, 10% of the population? It's a significant chunk, but I wouldn't say it's a very big chunk. Yeah, but it's... Because it, it's still restricted in where these people actually exist. Yeah. Given that the party so far has kind of... A lot of its reforms have really been copycat reforms in some respects. Do you think that they're likely to or are thinking about approaching this new middle class in the same way the Communist Party of China does, which is essentially to co-opt it and to ensure that basically if you want to get ahead, you join the party. If you want to secure your wealth and and interests, you join the party. You ensure that over a long period of time, the interests of the political structures and the interests of the economic dynamism of the economy are, are pretty neatly aligned. And I think the Chinese experience has shown that liberal utopia of as you get a middle class they become liberal that's not happening in at least not in any kind of simple sense but there's evidence that if you let them just drift then their interests will clash is is north korea do you think heading in that direction or is it a bit too early to see that attempt to sort of institutionalize Mm -hmm. things hard to say uh i mean you'd imagine that that's the option that's open to the north korean government what else are they going to Mm -hmm. do if they don't try and interact and cooperate with this group, they will become a political threat because they're changing uh, the dynamics of the North Korean economy. So their economic interests will diverge. One final speculator. Liberal School of Foreign Policy thinking says that economically interested groups, particularly those that trade abroad, have a moderating effect on a state's foreign policy. So business elites get in the ear of the American government or the Chinese government or the British government and say... Don't be so bellicose. We've got to trade with those people. And that then has consequences of a you know, more benign approach to the world. Now, I'm not saying that theory is right, but do you think that there's a prospect that as basically North Korea becomes more economically plugged into the rest of the world, that we'll see a bit of a retreat from the, that very aggressive language and that 
potentially quite destabilizing set of policies that they've been adopting past you know, five, ten years around not just nuclear stuff, but arming the border, attacking the South Korean ships and, and shelling territorial borders. Do you think that is a possibility or is this another liberal fantasy? I think there's a little bit of liberal fantasy about this. I mean, North Korea doesn't trade with the West. So there's no economic linkages there that would dampen that bellicose behaviour. Their major economic interactions are with China and other players that are sort of outside this orbit. If we look at the broader region and the, the hegemonic competition that's going on between China and the US, North Korea's been successfully navigating between the old Washington consensus American development model and the new Beijing consensus development model. And North Korea is very much plugged in to the Beijing consensus model basically as a supplier of natural resources for the Chinese economic engine. And for the Chinese, that's great because they're right there on their border, easy bankable source of natural resources. And so North Korea's and China's interests align more readily than North Korea and American interests, for example. But we see North Korea and China often at odds, and there's a, a very large tension between Pyongyang and Beijing uh, the Chinese are not all that happy with uh, uh, some of North Korea's more adventurous behaviour, should we say. All right, that's all the time we have. Always fascinating talking with you, Ben, about North Korea, particularly the parts that we tend not to talk about, which is the economy, and it's clearly something we want to revisit to see whether your more pessimistic sense is right about a North Korea that's getting richer but not getting nicer. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of the Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe through iTunes or SoundCloud. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Dr. Benjamin Habib, or you can follow me at Nick Bisley. Thanks for listening.